0: everyone. Well, I've got a confession to make. I told you last time that that would be the last time we would do the questions Jesus asked. But the more I prayed about it, and the more I looked at just the rich gold that is in the New Testament, in the Gospels regarding questions that Jesus asked and how powerful they were and um, how meaningful they are if we understand them and apply them to our own lives. I thought, well, I've got to continue with the questions Jesus asked because they really are a gold mine. And so tonight we're just going to keep on going. And uh, I, we've had a lot of viewers, a lot of people watching this series on Wednesday nights. And so while we're still not meeting in the building, then uh, and only online, then I'm going to continue with uh, just series like this, uh, which I would do if I were there. And so tonight we're going to look at three more questions. And I really believe they're going to bless you. So let's just take them one at a time, and the first one is one that I've always wondered about and that people have wondered about, well, since Jesus died on the cross. Here's the question, you'll recognize it. When Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know the question. Now, if you look at Matthew 27, verses 45 through 50, we have the incredibly gripping drama of Jesus being crucified. It's it's hard for me to read. I've read it, you know, all these years since I became a Christian. I've read it hundreds of times, but it's difficult every time because of what Jesus went through. But Matthew 27, 45 to 50 records the three hours in which darkness came upon the earth. And it was a spiritual darkness that Jesus faced on the cross. Never have there been three hours like these three hours in the history of the world, because this is the defining moment when everything the Old Testament anticipated and pointed towards is now being fulfilled all the way back to Genesis 315, when God predicted the first prophecy in the Bible, when God told the devil, I'm going to raise up somebody from the seat of the woman and he's going to bruise your head. Well, now jumping ahead in time, thousands of years, here finally is God's ultimate sacrifice lamb, Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross. He is taking upon himself the sins of the world. Uh, The crowd that had yelled out, Hosanna, Hosanna and celebrated him just days before when he entered Jerusalem on a donkey are now saying, crucify him, crucify him as he uh, is taken to the cross. And now they're jeering at him, mocking him as he hangs on the cross. Now, theologians through the ages have pondered Jesus' question because it's, it's, it's a question that you got to wonder about because we know Jesus never sinned. We know that never one time did he ever have to say, oh, Father, forgive me. I shouldn't have done that, thought that gone there, uh, said that, Father, forgive me. He never did because he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So Jesus never sinned. So why would he say to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So theologically, it poses a problem. And so I'm going to give you three possibilities and probably I think I'm just going to go on and suggest that it was a combination of all three of these things. But let me let me give you what I believe was behind Jesus words. And of course, it's only conjecture because we don't know for sure. None of the apostles ever wrote down definitively what Jesus meant by those words. Nothing. So um, let me just give you some possibilities first his great bodily sufferings on the cross, greatly aggravated by his previous scourging. Remember, he received 39 lashes across his back with a cat and nine tails. I think you and I, if we got even one of those, it would take us to the ground. But Jesus was whipped 39 times across his bare back. And so that scourging, led up to his crucifixion. It happened before his crucifixion. And there was no sympathy from the crowd. As I've already mentioned, the same crowd that had hosannahed him days before were now turned against him. And they were reviling him, mocking him, making fun of him, um, jeering at him. So this combination of intense, exquisite suffering, that you and I will never know. We can't imagine what Jesus was experiencing. A person like this, now remember he was all God, all man, all man, all God. Keeping that in mind, which part called out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I think just the manhood of Jesus, the suffering man. Behold the man, behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, his suffering as a human being. I think that part of him cried out and said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He wasn't expressing doubt in God's care. He was just experiencing exquisite, extreme suffering. And then he himself said that this was the power of darkness. He said, the enemy of this world, the prince of this world is coming. And and, and, and he also said, this is, this is your hour, he said to the Roman soldiers. This is your hour and the power of darkness. So it was the time when his enemies, including the Jews and the devil himself, uh, were were allowed by God to do their utmost because he was our sacrifice lamb. God allowed this. Indeed, he orchestrated the sacrifice of his son. We can't imagine this, comprehend it. If we sat here for a thousand years, we would never fully grasp it. But that's what God did. And this was when the enemy was bruising his heel. Remember in Genesis 3.15, God said that out of the seed of the woman would come somebody who would deal a death blow to Satan's head. But he also said to the devil, you will bruise his heel. Well, this was the bruising of his heel. And he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Part of, part of that utterance was due to the fact that the devil was afflicting him at this point, bruising, as it were, his heel. And then lastly, Isaiah tells us in Isaiah 53, verses four and five, that Jesus bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions bruised for our iniquities, um, that the chastisement of our peace was upon him. In other words, the chastisement he received necessary for us to have the peace of God was upon him. And with his stripes, we were healed. This was that moment when Isaiah 53 was being fulfilled. Paul writes to the church that he has redeemed us from the curse of the law being made a curse for us, Galatians 3.13. He was made a sin offering for us, 2 Corinthians 5.21. He died in our place, on our account, that he might bring us near to God. It was this that no doubt caused his intense sufferings. All three of these things combined caused our Lord to look up and just say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it could be, that for a moment as he took my sins and your sins, all of our sins upon himself, and he took the wrath for us and tasted death for us. It could be that for that moment in time, he sensed a separation from the father. And at that moment, he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? So the summary, what we get from this question is that Jesus suffered, and bled and died in our place. So we can only agree with the writer of Hebrews in light of everything Jesus did. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Dear friends, tonight I want you to know, Jesus suffered exquisitely on that cross. And Buddha didn't do that. Muhammad didn't do that. No other man in the history of the world has ever done that for us or could have done that for us. Jesus was born to die. He came to the earth to deliver us from the power of sin, the consequences of sin, from a certain hell to a gorgeous and glorious heaven. Jesus died on that cross of shame and pain so that you and I would not experience the wrath of God. And thank God he did that. As I've already quoted It says in the Bible that he made him, that is he being God, made him Jesus who knew no sin ever to become sin for us on that tree that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Where would we be without him? I can't even think about it. I don't even want to consider it. I've I've many times sat down and thought, where would Jeff Wickwire be? Where would so many people I know, where would we be? if it had not been for the death of Jesus Christ on the cross and the glorious power that is in the gospel of Christ, when we hear that gospel, that God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes on him would not perish, but have everlasting life. Thank God that Jesus uh, died on the cross. He did suffer intensely, but praise God on the third day, he got up again from the dead and he has now been taken back to heaven. He has ascended back to glory and God has given the one who suffered for us a name that is above every name that is in heaven on earth or under the earth. And he has glorified him and thank God. He's the soon coming King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I believe that all the church I'll be looking up right now uh, and lifting up our heads because surely our redemption draws nigh. Thank God for Jesus on the cross. Thank you, Lord, that when you said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You were taking my sin, our sins, onto yourself and feeling the wrath that would have come upon us. And thank you, Jesus. You went all the way to the cross and died for us and rose from the dead for our justification. In Jesus' name, amen. That's a powerful question now let's go to a second question. Uh, very different, but it's the the scenario that I'm about to read is also during the time of Jesus' crucifixion. Here's a question that maybe you've read and thought, what did Jesus mean by that? I know that I had before. And so I'll tell you the context after I read it. But the question is found in Luke chapter 23, verse 31. Here it is. For if the, this is Jesus talking, for if these things are done when the wood Is green. What will happen when it is dry? Let me read it again. For if these things are done when the wood is green, what will happen when it is dry? Well, what in the world does that mean? Well, let me give you the context. The context here is a somber one. Uh, Jesus is being led up the hill of Golgotha. He has been already whipped. His back is profusely bleeding. Flesh is hanging down from where the cat of nine tails ripped into him. He's being taken up the hill of Golgotha, meaning the place of a skull. What a name. In order to be crucified. This is why he came to the world for this very moment in time. The whole Old Testament looks forward to this, predicted this, and anticipated this. This moment. This is ground zero in the history of the world. The crucifixion of Jesus Christ for our sins. He's reached the place of not even being able to carry his own cross. He's so weakened by the blood that he's lost and the suffering he's gone through at the hands of the whip that he can no longer carry his cross. And when it becomes clear that he's not going to make it to the top of Golgotha, The Roman soldiers tap a man named Simon the Cyrenian. He's a black man. They tap Simon and they say, you carry his cross. And the Bible says he followed Jesus. Can you imagine being Simon? I can't, but let's try. Simon is just going to work. He got up that day not expecting anything different. He got up that day. It's a normal day. He probably kissed his wife goodbye, said goodbye to the kids and left that, that day to, to go and just do the business the, that he usually does. It's it's a normal, typical, everyday day. And yet, as he walks along, he sees a crowd and he doesn't know what the crowd is all about. So he draws close and he sees a crucifixion scene. There's a, a bigger crowd, however, than normal. It's an intensely emotional crowd. So Simon draws even closer and Simon looks and he sees a man. He sees this man has been whipped. He sees him struggling to carry his cross. He sees some women around this man who are weeping and crying and wailing. He sees other people crying out that he ought to be crucified. He sees a lot of religious leaders that are not normally attending crucifixions. And he wonders what that's about. So he draws a little bit closer. Curiosity has gotten the best of him. And as he looks, he sees that the man has dropped the cross. He can't continue. And right about then, a Roman guard or a Roman soldier spots Simon peering at this scene. And he calls to him, motions to him. And Roman law says that whatever the Roman soldiers tell you to do, you've got to do it. So the Roman soldier beckons to him and says, come over here. You carry his cross. Simon has no idea that this is a historical moment, the most historical moment in the history of the world, the greatest moment in history and all of history. He doesn't have any idea that he's about to step onto the stage of history and be written up in God's eternal word as the one who carried Jesus' cross. He picks it up, still not fully understanding who this is. He doesn't know that it's Jesus. He doesn't know that it's the miracle worker. He doesn't know that it's the one that has turned Jerusalem and much of that region, the land of Judea, upside down by his miracles and teaching and preaching. He doesn't know that this man is despised by the religious leaders and that Pilate has tried to get out of having him, uh, or Herod has tried to get out of, having him crucified. And Pilate has tried to get out of it, but can't. He doesn't know anything. He just knows he's been told to carry the cross. And so he begins to carry it. In front of him is the man, the man, capital M man, walking up this hill. Well, he carries the cross behind him. He keeps his pace with Jesus. He doesn't want to go past him. He doesn't want to get ahead of him. He doesn't want to crowd him. So he paces himself along with the slow, struggling form of Jesus Christ. They reach the top of the hill. Somewhere along the way, one of the Roman soldiers says, that's enough, go on. I think Simon hung around. I don't think he immediately walked away. I think he stayed to see what was going on. He now is aware that there's two others being crucified along with the man whose cross he carried He watches them drive the spikes in the wrists. He watches them drive the spikes in the feet. He watches them pick him up and drop him into a hole in the ground, where when the cross reaches the bottom, the cross lunges and comes to an abrupt halt, jerking on the body of Jesus and causing even more excruciating pain. He watches as some very strange things unfold. Before long, in a couple of hours, at high noon, a darkness covers the land. He looks around and goes, what is this about? It's like midnight at high noon. Things have grown as still and as quiet as an early, early morning hour. He watches. This man is suffering. This man is dying. He watches the suffering. He watches the pain. He watches them try to give him a drink of vinegar and and he won't take it. He watches the people hurling insults at this man. Now he begins to connect the dots. He says, oh, I've heard about somebody who was going around healing the sick, raising the dead, casting out devils, teaching like no man ever taught. Is this him? Is this the miracle worker? Is this the one that some said was the Messiah? He watches. Before too awfully long, and I don't believe he ever left till Jesus was, I'm just... I don't have scriptural evidence for this, but I believe Simon um, had a curiosity because something supernatural was going on that would have held his attention. He stays hour after hour. As the time goes by, suddenly this man cries out, Eloi, Eloy, lama sabachthani, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And then he looks up and he says, Father, into your hands, I commit my spirit. And he dies. Simon walked away probably saying something like, we have seen strange things today. Well, the question Jesus asked this time was leveled at the weeping women that Simon no doubt heard, because he was carrying Jesus' cross. And the women that had followed Jesus and had ministered to Jesus and had even given him um, funds, money, finances, uh, to support his itinerant ministry, we're told that in the Bible very clearly. These were women of means. And as Simon is carrying the cross and Jesus is making his way up the hill, he, he sees this, these women weeping and crying and Jesus turns to them and he says to them, women, don't weep for me. Don't weep for me. I want to read it to you. He says, a great multitude of the people followed him and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turned to them and said, daughters of Jerusalem, don't weep for me, but weep for yourselves and weep for your children. For indeed the days were coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore and breasts, which never nursed. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, fall on us and to the hills, cover us for if they do these things here, here comes his statement. Here comes his question for if they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? Simon heard Jesus pose this question to the women. And I think the question came to Simon as well. Now, notice with me that Jesus didn't entertain any self-pity. Here's the women crying over him. Jesus didn't say, boy, thank you for crying for me. I'm crying for me too. No, he did not entertain self-pity for a millisecond. Not at all. Instead, he looks at these women. They're not being led up a hill to be crucified. They're not about to die. But Jesus says to these women, weep for yourselves and weep for your children. Why? Here's why. Because these horrible things, the worst crime in the history of the world was being committed when the tree was green. See, the worst crime ever committed in the history of the entire world was the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. Because no man, Who went under underwent capital punishment was ever as innocent as Jesus. As a matter of fact, Jesus never sinned at all. There has never been a man subjected to capital punishment that was as pure as the driven snow, that was as innocent as God's Lamb. Never. And he was crucified, he was murdered based on trumped up charges that weren't true at all. Uh, false witnesses, false accusations. And when they killed the son of God, they committed the worst crime in the history of the world. No crime can ever begin to compare to it. I don't care what crime you think of. Jesus is saying, if they're able to do this to me, an innocent, totally innocent man in the green tree, that is when I'm here, when I'm here, then what will they do when I'm not here? What will they do when my teaching isn't here, when my presence isn't here, when when I, as a restrainer, am not here? This is the green tree. They're doing this with me standing right in their midst. What are they capable of when I'm no longer here? What are they capable of? And then I also think it can be interpreted this way. The green tree illustrates a tree that is alive and capable of being or, or bearing fruit. So the green tree here represents Jesus, who is called the vine, the branch, the tree of life. He's saying, if they do this to me, if they're doing this to me, a man that has done nothing wrong, a man who has never sinned, what will they do to dry wood? which illustrates a dead tree, a person dead in trespasses and sins. So get this now. You can interpret it a couple of different ways. One, they're able to do this when I'm in their midst, when the tree is, figuratively speaking, green. When, when my teaching, when I'm here as a teacher, when I'm here as a prophet, When I'm here as an innocent man going around doing good, healing everybody oppressed of the devil and so on and so forth, if they can do this when somebody like myself is in their midst, what will they do when I'm no longer in their midst? And then the second interpretation, if they can do this to me, a green tree, a thoroughly innocent man, what are they capable of doing to people who are in sin, who aren't perfect, who are flawed, Uh, illustrated by the dry wood. The Bible says we're all sinners. We're born in sin, shaped in iniquity. Before we're born again, our spirits are dead. Thus we have dry wood. We are illustrative of dry wood. So what are they capable of doing to those that are not like me? Well, I believe that Jesus was pointing down the tunnel of time to just a few decades from then when the Roman soldiers, the same soldiers, the same army that crucified him along with the Jewish religious leaders, the same Roman army, that did this to the green tree surrounded Jerusalem. And Jesus had said, "O oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, how many times I would have gathered you around me like a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. He had looked and he had said, uh, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by armies, know that the desolation is near. And he told his followers, if you're in Jerusalem when this happens, flee to the mountains. Don't even go down to get the stuff out of your house. When the Roman soldiers, when you see Jerusalem surrounded by an army, get out of town. And we know historically that many Christians who remembered the words of Jesus got out because what was Jerusalem at that time? It was the dry wood. It happened in 70 AD. Jesus died around 33.5 AD. Just a few years later, a few decades later, they surrounded Jerusalem, just like he said, and they invaded it. And they slaughtered a million Jews. It was terrible. They took, they tore the temple down like Jesus had predicted. Not one stone was left upon another. And the Jews were dispersed among the nations and did not regather again, ladies and gentlemen, until 1948, 20 centuries later. What was Jerusalem when this happened to them? They were the dry wood. If they do these things to the green tree, me, said Jesus, what will they do to the dry wood? I believe he had the destruction of Jerusalem in his mind. Not only the destruction of Jerusalem, but I think it was foremost in his thinking, the destruction of Jerusalem. That was the dry wood. And so you look at this and you go, here's the lesson from Jesus' question. If they do these things in the green tree, what will they do in the dry Well, the lesson for us is the fallen nature of man can lead to great cruelty and should not leave us mystified when we see it. Jesus said, if they can do this to me, beat me in the back, disfigure my face, treat me cruelly, crucify me when I've done nothing wrong, then what can fallen man do to fallen man. I don't know about you, but I'm often, I I, I see things, I see, you know, I read about the, the things you do, the, the terrible murders that take place, terrorist acts and all the things that go on in our world. And sometimes you go, how could anybody do that? And then you got to remember the words of Jesus who said, if they can do these things to me, the green tree, what can man do to man, fallen man, Sinful man. And the question is almost anything. So that's why we need to be born again. That's why we must be transformed by a new birth. Born once, you're in sin. Born twice, you're forgiven. Born once, you're dead. Born twice, you're alive. Born once, you're blind. Born twice, You see, born once, you're hell bound. Born twice, you're heaven bound. Born once, the devil's your father. Born twice, God's your father. So that's why Jesus said you must be born again. Such is the cruelty of the nature of fallen man. Well, let's deal with one more question. Are you ready? Here it is. Jesus asked this question. How are you to avoid being sentenced to hell? How are you to avoid being sentenced to hell? Do you know Jesus said that? Now, who did he say it to? And what's the context? Well, the chapter in which this question was asked by our Lord is what might be called Jesus takes the Pharisees to the woodshed chapter. Seriously, Matthew 23 is the Jesus takes the Pharisees to the woodshed chapter. The whole chapter is Jesus taking the Pharisees to the woodshed. It is Matthew 23, and Jesus holds nothing back for 39 scorching verses. He calls the Pharisees. Are you ready for this? Now, as I read these things, I want you to stop and think. Was Jesus politically correct? Was he always worried about offending people? Was he always walking on glass so as not to offend somebody's sensibilities? No. Would Jesus, if he lived today, would he be politically correct? No, I assure you, he would be politically incorrect. Jesus would not allow himself to be muzzled by political correctness if he were here today, I guarantee you. So how do you know that, Jeff? Because listen to how he talked to these Pharisees. And as I read these things, it's very clear. He wasn't worried about hurting their feelings or offending them. He called the Pharisees hypocrites blind guides, sons of hell, fools, whitewashed tombs, serpents, vipers, murderers, yikes. Yep, he called them all those things and more. That's not even all of it. Now, it's in the middle of all this castigation of the Pharisees that Jesus asked them this question in the middle of this woodshed moment for them he asked them this question. How are you going to avoid being sentenced to hell? Now, we know here some really important things. First of all, Jesus clearly identifies a place called hell. I don't know why it's a controversy these days, whether or not Jesus really taught on hell. Do he really mean it when he used the word hell? Oh, yes, he meant it. And did you know that nobody taught on hell more than Jesus in the entire word of God? Nobody. He wants the Pharisees to ask themselves how they're going to miss it. Now, remember, I told you whenever Jesus asked a question of anybody, he didn't need an answer. He already knew the answer. He used questions to teach. He used questions to bring a message. And he's using this question here. How are you going to avoid being sentenced to hell? He says to these Pharisees that he's just spent 39 verses castigating. All right. Clearly, Jesus considers hell to be very real, a terrible place, and one to which men will be sentenced, because that's the word that he used. How will you Pharisees who have done all these things, have committed all this sin, your, your hypocrisy, all the things you do, uh, you're not really children of God, you're not really um followers of Moses, if you, you know, with all of this, how are you going to avoid being sentenced? Now that speaks to a judgment coming because there's no sentencing without a judge and there's no judge without a judgment. So clearly hell is not a concept to Jesus. It's not, it's not a myth that he's just making use of to making a point or to make a point. He's not using hell as a metaphor to bring fear to them. No, Jesus talked about hell, as I've already stated, more than anybody else in the entire Bible. Now, he talked about heaven way more, thank God. But Jesus talked about hell many times. Well, the two most common words for hell, let's talk about it for a moment. And let me show you what the word hell means, because this is the word Jesus used. The two most common words for hell are Hades and Gehenna. Now, Hades was the Greek word for the realm of the dead, but Jesus used it more specifically to refer to a place of torment. You remember when he gave the illustration of the rich man that died and he woke up in Hades and his servant who had um, been outside of his gates, the dogs had licked his sores and he never had enough to eat. And the rich man died and finally the servant died. And the rich man went into Hades and the servant went into Abraham's bosom. You remember the parable. But that's where Jesus used the word Hades. It was a, a place where departed souls that were not righteous would go in order to wait for the coming judgment. That's what Hades was in Jesus' teaching, okay? Now, Gehenna, on the other hand, referred to the Hinnom Valley, south of Jerusalem, which centuries earlier uh, had seen child sacrifices practiced there. Now, but by the time of Jesus, Gehenna, Gehenna was now a, a picture of hell, such that Jesus warns, fear him. Listen to the words of Jesus. Don't fear him who can kill your body, but not your soul but fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And in the Greek there, he says Gehenna. So Gehenna was a place that was always burning uh, at the edge of Jerusalem. It was like a big trash pile that was always burning. And it was where these terrible child sacrifices had taken place when they would take a child and place him, place a newborn child into the red hot arms of the idol, Molech and the poor little baby would be burned to death. I'm sorry. I know that's hard to hear, but that's what they did. And that's why God brought it, Judah into judgment for doing this and Israel, the 10 tribes and the, and the two tribes. He, he brought both into, into judgment for this kind of child sacrifice. So Gehenna is, re, is, is related to burning. And this is the place that Jesus used when he said, Fear him who can destroy both soul and body in Gehenna. So Jesus is clearly using fire imagery. Jesus often convert, uh, combines this word with fire, a very common image of hell. As such, he communicated the horror of the place. As in Matthew five twenty-two, when he warns, whoever says you fool will be liable to Gehenna. Will 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 be in danger of going to Gehenna, uh, the the fire of hell, and then Jesus also used darkness imagery to illustrate or describe hell. I believe it's both. I believe it is a place of burning, and I believe it's a place of intense darkness. You know, these people go around and say, "Oh yeah, me and my buddies, we're just going to party in hell. I can't wait to see my friends down in hell. We'll rock out in hell." That's foolish ignorant talk. You won't see anybody in hell. You won't recognize buddies in hell. There is nowhere in the Bible that validates what you're saying at all. Oh, no, no, no. Hell is going to be a lonely place, a burning place, a dark place. Listen to this. Another common picture of hell is darkness. Jesus warns that those who refuse to enter the kingdom of God by repentance and faith will be thrown into the outer darkness in that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth, Matthew 8, 12. So what did Jesus actually teach about hell? We can summarize it like this. Hell is the place of conscious eternal torment where people experience God's punishment for their sin. Yes, hell is. The eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels spoken of in Matthew 25, 41. So there Jesus is telling us, Hell wasn't made for human beings. It was made for the devil and his angels. When man fell, he became included in those that would go to hell if they did not repent. But originally it was just made for the devil and his angels, according to Christ. But also it's going to be used for those who join rebellion against God. So Jesus was very clear about hell. The horror of hell is such that Jesus says this, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into Gehenna, to the unquenchable fire. Matthew or Mark 9:43. For those who do not enter the narrow door of faith and repentance in Jesus, Luke 13:24, a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth awaits them, Luke 13:28. At the end of human history, everybody will appear before Jesus Christ. Did you know that? There's going to be a resurrection of everybody where he will divide humanity into sheep, those who demonstrate their faith in Jesus through their good works, and the goats, those who did not trust in Christ. The sheep will receive eternal life while the goats will go away into everlasting punishment, truly into the place called Gehenna. Darkness, burning, separation from all presence of God. So how could the Pharisees escape hell by placing their faith in Jesus Christ? Because Jesus offered the way out. He said to them, how will you escape being sentenced to hell? But Jesus gave us an escape. He told us how to avoid being sentenced to hell. He lived a life of perfect obedience, died a sacrificial death on the cross for our sins, rose from the death to defeat sin, death, hell, and the grave. He invites everybody to trust in him to receive eternal life rather than the eternal punishment that you will find in Gehenna if you don't repent and turn to Christ. How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? Well, I hope you were blessed tonight by this series of questions. Three great questions that I tell you, they spoke to me. I hope they spoke to you And I want you to know, we love you. Cindy and I love you. And we pray for you. I pray for you. Virtually every morning, I lift you up before God and pray that in this difficult time in our nation, you will be protected. You'll be provided for. You'll sense his presence. And God's going to bring us all out on the other side, stronger, um, sharper, and more mature than before we ever went into this trial. We love you. And I'll see you Sunday at either 9 or 11 for a great Sunday after Christmas message. I'll see you then. God bless.